the Digital Society podcast brings together leading journalists, politicos, and key policy influencers to explore the impact technological change is having in the UK and across the world. And it's hosted by Atos Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communications, Kulver cool Ranger. I am immensely proud to welcome you to the Digital Society podcast from India. Yes, we are international. My name's Kulveer Ranger. I'm head of strategy, marketing, communications and public affairs for Atos in Northern Europe, APAC, and yes, India. And today I'm delighted that we are recording our first international Digital Society podcast. And not only that, you know, as ardent listeners of this podcast, that we have influential people from media, from politics, uh, people who are leading lights and influencers in the technology space. And today, I have to say, we have someone who is all of those things, all of those things in India and more and more. Varun Agarwal, senior uh, business editor at Economic Times. Welcome and thank you for joining me on this podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Kulveer. Thanks for having me and uh, for that elaborate introduction. I don't think I deserve uh, that kind of uh, uh, praise, but uh, happy to be here with you. Now, look, uh, nowadays, right, it's about your voice and your platform. And you you have a voice in mainstream media in, in, in India, which is fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to get into the excitement of the size and scale and what's going on in here. But but look, you've had a, an interesting career as well. You know, you took on this role in February 2020. And right now you're in Delhi. Right? I'm, I'm in Chennai. Right. India is right. a vast country. So although we're in the country, we're, we're quite some distance from each other. But tell me, over the last sort of 15 years, what have you seen from a technology perspective in your career that is probably, and I'm going to lay this one on you first, that has surprised you most? Right. So let me just talk uh, about my career path. So I started with uh, a publication called uh, Express Computer. And uh, you know, at that time, uh, <clears throat> it was a physical magazine. It still is. And you had to be physically present to actually check all the proofs. It was a very long process. So every week you had to spend long hours at office uh, to make sure you know everything is perfectly done. You took out printouts of every page and manually checked everything after you actually did everything on screen. But we wanted to actually try a disrupted uh, model, disruptive model at that point, because I was moving to a different city and I wanted to see if it can be worked out remotely. So we started sending out proofs over uh, PDF files and started doing it, you know, annotating on PDF files. So uh, initially it seemed impossible because uh, the team was not used to it and they needed feedback. So I was like, we can just get on a call and quickly just do it. So instead of spending all night uh, closing a magazine, we could do it remotely uh, within working hours. So. This was uh, almost 16 years back that we tried this, but things didn't really change much in media over the years. Uh, offices still expected you to be there even if you're actually not doing anything in office. So as a, as a journalist, you're always uh, out looking for stories, uh, but a lot of organizations still expect you know you come back to office and then file your story. That completely got disrupted automatically because of the pandemic, because you didn't have the option to actually come to office and file your stories. And I think uh, that has given a lot of opportunities for uh, young talent to work from different places. 
and report live stories. So you don't really have to come back to your home base to file those stories. You can be in Chennai and right from there you can file a story and get the feedback from your editor. Uh, you know, so that's a, a lot easier than it used to be before. It's amazing you talk about that because you're talking about disruption that happened in your industry and in working practices now, what, 15, 16 years ago or during that period. But now obviously we've seen that turbocharged through the period of the pandemic where every business, every industry has had to look at it, how it's working and operating. Uh, and we as a business, we're Atos, we're you know global business, 111,000 people around the world in over 70 countries. But you know a fantastic uh, colleague base in India, almost forty thousand people that we have here, and growing fast. And we've seen the change there as well. And we're we're learning. I think a lot of people are now learning in this post-pandemic era, and we you know all hope we're absolutely over the hump of this terrible uh, period that we've all been through. But now the change seems to be even more significant. Right? It's it's happened faster. How are you seeing that? playing out in sort of industry? Are you seeing the challenges as we all grapple with how to look at this new working model? So it's challenging for some industries. It's extremely uh, opportune time for other industries. For example, uh, some of the traditional publications uh, are still struggling and some of them were forced to shut down uh, during the pandemic uh, because they just couldn't uh, manage print publication and people in a lot of places stopped subscribing to print because people were afraid they might uh, catch the virus through a, a print paper. So those publications suffered a lot, but at the same time, people who were quick to uh, go online, they actually doubled and tripled their revenues. Yeah. So yeah. just set some context, uh, you know, uh, I, I work in the B2B segment of Economic Times and we used to have about two to three uh, uh, panel discussions, physical panel discussions before the pandemic. I joined in Feb 2020 and within a month we had a lockdown. So initially we thought we'll not have anything to do. But uh, by April 2020, we had more than 2025 events happening, uh, 2025 panel discussions happening a month. And it, actually it went up to almost 40, 45 a month which was impossible to do in a physical format. It still is impossible to do in a physical format. But in a virtual format, you know, you don't have to uh, go to a hotel. You don't have to spend that kind of uh, time to uh, you know, set up uh, everything. So it's a lot more agile. You can use basic equipment and everyone is, uh, you know, a video recorder uh, these days. Everyone's a podcaster these days. So you have to evolve uh, with time. So you can't just say that you, know, you were a print journalist, you will always continue doing that. Ultimately, you have to think yourself as a storyteller. It's a new way of storytelling and that's all. You can still continue doing the same job that you were doing, but just deliver it in a different way. I love that. I love that. You have to think, everyone has to think of themselves as a storyteller. It's really you're touching on the opportunity that the, the period of the pandemic has brought to us all. Uh, and, uh, you know, you yourself are highlighting at first it wasn't really visible, but how, how quickly both it's become visible, but uh, almost so big. The opportunity is so big in this, this new world of where's content coming from and how do you the channels you use to get it out there, especially from a media perspective. 
Um, but I'd like to just touch a bit on on India. You know, we're here. I'm, we're delighted to be here. I'm, I'm, look, I, I'm a you know I'm a born and bred Londoner from the UK, but Punjabi uh, India. I'm pretty comfortable in India because I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time as I was growing up in India. So I have a very, very deep love for India. And obviously my ancestry is here. But as international businesses, right, they're playing, India is playing an even bigger role in the world of technology. And we at Atos noticed that we know that a lot of our engine for skills, uh, for talent, is coming from this country, from the young people in this country. How are you seeing that in in India? Do you see, do you see that coming up? Because it's, it's visible to us, and there's a there's almost a talent war going on. Right. And how are you in the media seeing that? So talent is there, but not there. You know, it's a very very tricky situation uh, right now because on one hand you have a large pool of unemployed youth. On the other hand, you have, uh, you know, X number of uh, global companies always struggling to find talent. So if you go to any employment website, you'll see listings just going up for unfulfilled position. And uh, if you talk to anyone uh, in the industry, they're just switching jobs. So it's uh, the mass resignation time. <clears throat> so obviously they're getting jobs somewhere. and. If you actually talk to some of those people, they have like multiple offers, three, four companies giving them, you know, 30%, 40% hike, which was unimaginable some time back. But the tricky point is uh, the demand is there only for certain skills. And people who are not willing uh, to retrain themselves, there are enough opportunities, by the way, to retrain yourself. So. Uh, it's not just the private sector. If you don't want to spend money, there's enough resources uh, created by the government, free of charge resources. Uh, you can just go online uh, and you know uh, enroll for a course. You have instructors telling you what to do, uh, giving you assignments and everything. It's all uh, out there for free. But if you're not willing to uh, go that extra mile and retrain yourself, you continue to be unemployed. I've seen people being unemployed for more than a year because they just couldn't uh, adjust to the new normal. So there are new technologies coming in. So, you know, let me just step back for a, a moment. So, you know, <clears throat> Indian education system used to be uh, very complicated. So it was always assumed that someone who's coming out of college had to go through at least a few months of training before they actually start being productive. Uh, it was an assumption because everyone assumed whatever is taught in schools and colleges are actually not really relevant in uh, uh, the actual business world. That's uh, changing very rapidly. Government itself, you know, uh, is taking up, is tying up with uh, edtech platforms, looking at areas where there are gaps, where there's a lot of demand from the industry. So there's a closer collaboration with the industry uh, and uh, academia, which actually never happened in the past. So that is helping out. Uh, it's obviously taking time, and that's why there's always a struggle to find talent, and there's always a struggle to find a job. But uh, eventually, I see things improving a lot. That's interesting, you know, because you've given us the inside-out view. Uh, as international businesses, we get the outside-in view. 
And we just see the, the, the sort of the struggle to attract the talent or find it. So I think there's a lot of work that probably we as businesses need to do to go out and search for the talent rather than just look top line. I think there's a bit more engagement that we're looking to do um, and build those longer relationships with communities and different parts of the country. I think, you know, we now are all seeing this, not just as a, uh, a kind of, you know, India can provide a service. India is now integral to our business model. It's something that's going to be there for uh, a generation. Uh, and I think we're all really excited. You know, I am. I'm particularly excited because it means I probably hopefully get to spend more time in India. Um, but I think we're excited about the opportunity to build those longer relationships. And we've got we've got a fantastic platform because we've got these great campuses in Chennai and Pune as well. Uh, you know, that can you know, 80 acres is our campus in Pune. Uh, so plenty of room for expansion. But um, I think you're right about how that's that supply chain of talent, how it, how you find it and how it's evolving and how you inspire it as well. It's not just going to be off the shelf. I think you're right. You've got to inspire people in terms of what how they can get into that. Um, but what, what more do you think? Because it, it, it can feel a bit sort of too much of a, you know, the, where international businesses and therefore people should work for us. What do, how do you think people should be engaged in terms of the pathway into these into these careers? So one of the things that uh, you know a lot of large corporations have cracked is partnering with top universities, creating curriculum, uh, creating special programs and projects, uh, sponsoring some of the projects uh, to basically connect people to the real world and to make them realize why a new technology is important. You know, you go to someone, you tell them uh, you're working on something like a metaverse, they'll be excited because it's the new buzzword right now but if you tell them that you know you're working on encoding uh, something for the metaverse they'll probably not be as excited so if you spend some time explaining why uh, this is important and why this could be really yeah. big going forward that will actually have a, a big impact i think that's something that's missing out because there are some consumer facing companies who always have enough applications floating in uh, and in reality they may or may not be doing any interesting work but there are companies uh, which are doing a lot of interesting work a lot of uh, futuristic work but just because it doesn't sound sexy people don't really get excited about that no so you have like, got to tell the story right you got to tell the story i think you're you're spot on there now, I, I'll, I'll give you an example because a lot of people sometimes haven't heard of our business atos but I tell right. you, they've they'll have absolutely heard of our customers. So even today, we've been we've been we had the, a leader from FedEx. Now that FedEx is a you know hundred billion dollar company, and they we are integral to their service, their delivery, uh, their ability to get you know live organs delivered from hospitals to pay the kind of trust that's placed in that organization, and we are at the center of helping them shape how their systems, their design, their data, everything works. Um, we run we run the Olympic Games for the IOC. We're the you know we're the leader who bring it all together, make sure that the 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 TV can work, the timings work, the accreditations for athletes work, and you know the the responsibility we we have for that, and also protecting it. Cybersecurity, we're number one in Europe, number two in the world in capability. 
So we ha we have these things, but we I I know what you're saying. We've got to tell the story about how how the exciting work you're doing. Storytellers today, so it's not up to the journalists anymore. Uh, it's not just up to the marketeers anymore. You have to be a storyteller as an HR person. You have to be a storyteller as a finance person, just to actually not just attract talent, but to propel your business to the next level. And and what do you think about? Because look, I I. I call this podcast uh, the Digital Society podcast, and and one of the reasons you know I work in this sector is not because I'm not a coder. I'll be put my hands up. I I couldn't write a piece of code to save my life. I probably did it on my, my Commodore 64 when I was very young, but never again since. But I feel technology businesses have a responsibility because we're shaping society. E everyone, to some degree, is now going to be influenced. Either they are already or they very quickly will be, by the changes that businesses like ours are making to the way the their, their money is handled, their homes and lives are led, their work is done, their health is managed. Every you know ecosystem around us, I call it the personal digital ecosystem, is building and building around us. And I'd like us to think that it's not being done to us, that we all have a stake in this that we can feel that we can influence it or at least understand it. Because if you can't understand it, then you can feel quite disconnected from it. So how does it feel, do you think, in India to, to, to and it's difficult in India because, you know, large, what, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. But to the average Indian system, what does, what does digital mean from your perspective? What do you think they think when they think digital? People don't think of digital as something uh, different. Ultimately, it's just a means of getting things done. So, uh, you know, back in, uh, I think, 2017, I uh, visited a village called Harisal in Maharashtra. It's a tribal village, a very small, disconnected village uh, in the middle of a forest. It's actually a tiger reserve. <clears throat> so you can actually encounter tigers if you go there, <laughs> if you're not very lucky, that is. <clears throat> but if you visit that place, it's fascinating. I mean, you have... Uh, uh, a remote healthcare uh, being set up, you have uh, a remote education being set up over there. So you, children are taking classes where teachers are sitting in a bigger town. <clears throat> uh, doctors are sitting in a, a large city hospital and they're connecting directly to you. They're actually monitoring your statistics, uh, which are taken by an equipment which is connected to a 2G network at that time. So. Right now, we talk about the capabilities of 4G and 5G. I think you know you need to go back to the basics and see what kind of value you're driving from technology rather than just looking at uh, the speed numbers. So people are constantly looking at ways in which they can improve their lives. And that could be just any digital means. So <clears throat> when uh, companies like Facebook and Google started free Wi-Fi services in some parts of the country, uh, they didn't expect people to actually leave their home and start studying on railway platforms because that's what actually started happening. People realized that this is uh, something really important and you need to learn ultimately <clears throat> to grow in your career. So there were misuses initially, which was you know understandable, but ultimately people started using it uh, to better their lives. People started using WhatsApp to do their business. So in small uh, towns I visited uh, in Himachal, people were sending uh, WhatsApp images of their stock 
to traders in larger cities and to individual customers in larger cities and just shipping them out, which was impossible for them to do in the past. Unless someone's visiting them, uh, you can't really sell something. So your uh, sales are restricted by the number of uh, tourists uh, who visit uh, your place. So that has completely changed. So no one was taught all of this, uh, you know, to be honest. People just picked up what made sense to make their lives better. So the smallest of things, ultimately, it's more about connectivity rather than, you know, talking about metaverse, talking about bitcoins and all of that. I love that. I love that. You know, you've aligned connectivity with making lives better. And that's that's kind of what I imply with a digital society. You know, we it should improve people's lives. It should improve society in terms of what digital delivers. Uh, and but you've also touched on how connectivity is relevant to economic output. Right. Absolutely. Because pe- people are innovating, as, they, as you were demonstrating. Um, but that has an economic impact. So the potential uh, in, in India for many people, there's all, you know, India is always equating to potential, isn't it? There's always an untapped potential. But there really is, as we know, you know, because you can see it happening. So how do you think, you know, is there a is there that need then to continue to chase ever increased connectivity to unlock that potential? And do you see that happening? I think we need to get our basics right. First of all, instead of talking about what kind of connectivity, we need to make sure there is connectivity in the first place because there are still a lot of places. Forget about places. Like you talk about big cities, you don't have good connectivity in big cities. You know, I'm talking to you right now. My connectivity can go off. I mean, I'm using the best of uh, networks available right now, but the congestion is so much. So instead of focusing on uh, I don't know, looking at the next wave of technology, making sure that you can utilize your existing uh, technology base more effectively is, I think, something that's uh, more important at the moment. It's interesting you say that because, um, you know, obviously I live in the UK and super fast connectivity is almost treated now like a utility, essential utility, like electricity, like running water. Now, we know you know, that's a challenge in large countries like India sometimes, but it's rapidly rising up the agenda that it's essential for people to live their lives, almost a level of connectivity, um, because it becomes integral to to all the services that you want to tap into. So I think there's an exciting time as the innovation races with connectivity. What, what comes first, the increased connectivity or the increased innovation that they drive each other? But I think just, just moving on from that, what about the the sense of how India is seen on the international stage uh, in terms of the innovation that's happening here. How how have you seen that being, you know, being from your journalistic perspective and especially the economic perspective? Are you seeing, I'll give you an example, right? It's it's a bit crass, but every time I watch um, the IPL, I see a, a new brand, a new tech brand, a new platform that's emerged rapidly and is now growing at, you know, huge scale india's ability to deliver these kind of economic boom businesses seems seems like it could be limitless are you seeing that are you seeing that excitement coming through no absolutely there is a huge excitement uh, you know a, a decade ago for example if you spoke to any entrepreneur uh, they would tell you that you know if you really want to scale up you have to shift your base to the us or maybe to London, 
and get in, start get, getting investors only then. If you were based out of India, you would never get investors. That's completely changed now. You have uh, um, a new unicorn pretty much every week. Wow. So, wow. I was <laughs> going to ask the unicorn question every week, right? <laughs> so it's a fascinating journey. I mean, uh, just five years back, you could just count unicorns on your fingers uh, in India. Today, you hear a new name, you've never heard of that name, and it's a unicorn, and it's doing incredibly interesting businesses. So initial crop of unicorns that came out of India were copycat businesses. You know, someone copied uh, uh, an e-commerce platform in the US, someone co copied something else. If it's um, a good idea, it's a good idea, right? <laughs> Absolutely, the Indianized it, but ultimately it wasn't original idea. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the same anymore. I mean, it's a, probably a similar story in China when where a lot of people try to just copy everything initially, and now they're leading the wave in terms of innovation. You see similar wave happening in India. People had a services mindset; they just wanted to deliver services uh, to clients in the U.S. and other markets. But now everyone's trying to create something different. And that entrepreneurship mindset is shifting beyond just making money. So <clears throat> a success of an individual is no more just about how much money they've raised. A success of a startup is not limited to a unicorn's status, but what kind of value you're actually delivering uh, to the society, um, to your industry in general. I, th I think you're right. You know, it's uh, it's interesting to hear from you that you've seen that that decade change and you know we saw that i think you know there was a point where it was only the us that you could go get funding and then it's emerged the european market for startups matured uh, london's been a hot spot you know um but now seeing it happening as i say you know you see it because you see those brands building at such rapid pace uh, it's amazing and and that means you know that means jobs that means the economy is increasing that means you know better living standards so it all it means greater influence. Um, but do you see any challenges on the horizon to that? Do you see, is there something that you say, okay, we've talked a lot about positive stuff here, right? and it's all great, but do you see anything that you think, well, we've got to keep an eye on this because that could be a, uh, a blocker potential? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, startups can be challenging. Uh, they can hire in thousands and fire in thousands. So, <clears throat> Initially, a lot of companies were rapidly scaling just to get that scale of customers. So they were just throwing money out uh, to get more and more customers on their platform. And now everyone's focusing on unit economics and you've, you're starting to see uh, the impact and companies are feeling the brunt and they're forced to fire a lot of people. Uh, that's, of course, challenging. But I think in the long run, it's a great exercise because you're cleaning up the system. So it's not just about blowing up your numbers to uh, get more funding. Ultimately, you're showing that what you're uh, building is delivering on its promise. So some people, some uh, uh, unicorns may disappear uh, in this process, but you'll have a, a new breed of uh, companies coming up, new breed of entrepreneurs uh, coming about in the space uh, who would eventually create a lot of value uh, for the society. Other than that, I think uh, training always continues to be a challenge and you can't just depend on, uh, uh, you know, your academic system to deliver on everything because 
teachers have to be uh, taught uh, as well. You know, so you learned engineering 20 years, 30 years back. If you keep teaching the same thing to students today, it won't be relevant for them. It won't make any sense to them. So industry who's looking for and constantly crying for talent also has to invest in talent and not just by buying talent, but actually uh, helping grow that talent, partnering with universities. And some of the, there's this obsession with IITs. I think companies have to go beyond that because there are a lot of good colleges and there's always an opportunity to nurture new talent in smaller places in more remote areas. If you're able to do that, there's no dearth of talent in India. And if you're able to tap that talent, there's no dearth of growth. Uh, if you look at uh, the overall GICs in India, the global in-house centers, we have, I think, more than 1,200 in India, and uh, they each have thousands of employees in India. So <clears throat> it started out as a back office, mostly, and today most of the GICs, and you know, you can back me up on this, uh, are actually delivering a lot of innovation from India. So they're not even reporting to someone at the headquarters and rather taking technology decisions right from India itself. You're absolutely spot on, right? You're right. Exactly that journey. You know, it was back office. It's not even that. It's direct with the customer from India. You know, and I think that's also there's a huge amount of trust that has developed over time in what India's capabilities are. And I think that's only going to grow. But I loved your your line there that it was like it's not about buying the talent. It's about investing in the talent. And I think that's also the maturing that everybody needs to do that it, it, it can't be an instant uh, turn on, turn off kind of situation. And that's what, what we're talking about, that long term strategy of where India now is positioned in the economic supply chain. It's not down in the supply chain, it's right at the forefront and it's integral and it's it's an engine. It's an engine driving, uh, driving businesses forward globally. So it's a fantastic time. Uh, Varun, look, I, I, I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you, you spending the time with me on this. Um, but I always end with two questions for all my guests, right? They're a bit, we've covered quite a bit here, um, but this is more about yourself and they're, they're not too personal, so don't get worried. <laughs> the first one is, um, in terms of consuming uh, media, so you're, you're a journalist, but in terms of consuming media, what is your preferred method of consuming media now? What do you use? You know, traditionally we used to read magazines, as you were saying, now people stop printing. What are the channels you use to consume media on a day-to-day -day basis? So I'm still quite traditional in that sense. So I still subscribe to five different newspapers every day and I scan through them uh, pretty much on a daily basis. But at the same time, I also subscribe to the digital version of all those publications. Fantastic. <laughs> You're doubling up. <laughs> because ultimately, you know, there is a lot of content and uh, newspaper has limited space so not everything uh, you can find there so one is uh, getting news on time getting the insights on time but the other thing is also finding the insights which are missing in the newspapers and a lot of it does miss out because you have limited real estate in a newspaper in a magazine so ultimately you have to subscribe to uh, their digital versions uh, LinkedIn itself actually sometimes becomes uh, a big source of uh, news because it's more of a community now and there are similar community platforms uh, out there where it's not so much about just news, it's about what your community is actually doing. So the content about your community and how you can engage with them better 
it comes out knowing that community better. I mean, it started off with something like uh, Orkut or Facebook, where it was more about your family and friends. But now the professional community also is extremely relevant, and that content is extremely important to track as well. Well, look, completely succinct answer, as I would expect from a, an editor of a, of, a, of a significant publication. And then my final question, and this one's about, you know, there's a scale here, one to ten, right? One being you're a technophobe uh, and, you know, you don't like the new devices, you'd like to stick to what you've got. And a ten being you're a complete techno geek. You buy the latest, you're in the queue for the latest, uh, you know, upgrade, for the latest software, for the latest device. Where do you place yourself on the one to ten scale? So today I would say I'm right in the middle, right. around five. Uh, if you asked me the same question 16 years back, it would be 10. I wanted to have the latest device. <laughs> I wanted to upgrade to the latest technology. But uh, today I would prefer to read about it, to learn about it, but not immediately adopt everything because it's just too much disruption, honestly. You know, the moment you change your device, your life is disrupted at least for a week. So I can't afford to do that. No, and I completely understand what you're saying, but it's interesting how we all go on this journey. Yeah? We we are at different points as we go through life. Varun Agarwal, uh, Senior Editor at The Economic Times, thank you so much for joining me on this edition of the Digital Society Podcast. I hope it's going to open up the, my, the audience to uh, our colleagues all around India, but also uh, our colleagues around the world. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the future as well. So thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Kulveer. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me here. To learn more about the podcast or suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please contact us at digitalsociety at atos.net or visit the Atos website.